I got tricked. I got tricked by a conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory, but an actual conspiracy, one that didn't cost that much to build and one that even after the conspiracy is exposed, I still want to be tricked by. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about plastics. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Sometimes it seems like if you want to start a business, you need a rich uncle or a bank or a VC. But that's not true. Some of the greatest projects of all time have been bootstrapped, built with a different model. The Bootstrappers Workshop is back from Akimbo. You can find out all the details at akimbo.com go. It's a chance to build the project that you've dreamed of, to find independence, to make a difference. You can be a bootstrapper, but it helps to know the best practices. I hope you'll check it out. Akimbo.com slash go. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir. Yeah. Plastics. I wasn't the only one who was tricked. You were probably tricked too. You might still be tricked. The question is not, did the plastics industry conspire to trick people in the United States and around the world into believing that plastics could be effectively recycled? That's a fact. You can find all the details at akimbo.link. There's been some great reporting by Frontline and NPR on this topic. My question is, why did it work? Why does it still work? Why is it that with just $50 million a year, which for reference is one twentieth of a billion dollars, which to put it in perspective is less than 5% of the amount of money spent on the last presidential election in the United States, that small amount of money was able to put a blue bin just about everywhere we look. And it was one that enabled the plastic industry to keep growing to the point where it's almost a trillion dollars a year in revenue. The truth is, of course, as you can discover with just 10 minutes of reading, that plastics can't be recycled, that fewer than 10% of all the plastics that were made in the last 50 years have been recycled. It turns out chemically that plastics break down every time we try to recycle them, that even if we could sort them perfectly, wash them perfectly, prepare them perfectly, it would still be cheaper to make new plastic. And so the problem, of course, is where do we put the plastic we've used? And why did it work so well? Why, even after I know the truth, do I persist in feeling the itch to put that plastic bottle into that blue bin? There were signals, there were stories, and it gets to human nature. The thing is that human beings, at least for my entire lifetime, have traded almost anything for convenience. Tim Wu has pointed out that people will instantly give up their privacy, their well-being, lots of long-term upsides for convenience now. And so the industrial system around us, the ratchet of capitalism, figuring out how to get a little bit ahead, make a few extra bucks, because if you don't, somebody else will. That system has offered us convenience. And one thing can be said for plastic containers. They're 
convenient. They're flexible, resilient, lightweight, easy to carry, easy to store. They don't break down over time. If you drop one on the floor, it doesn't shatter. They're pretty when they're on the shelf. Plastic containers have informed our lives. There weren't any plastic containers 80 years ago, and now there are plastic containers everywhere. Something shifted, and what shifted was a technology came along that was convenient. But in the back of our heads, we had a hunch that there was a catch. And the catch was, we really don't want to litter. Now, we were taught not to litter by a nationwide campaign in the 1960s. Before then, it wasn't uncommon for someone to eat a McDonald's hamburger and just throw the bag out the window when they were done. But we came up with a cultural standard. People like us do things like this. People like us don't throw garbage in the street. We don't litter. What about then all of these plastic bottles? What about the two-liter Pepsi that costs 89 cents? Where do we put the bottle when we're done? And so the reason the plastics industry didn't need to spend a lot of money at first is that we wanted a way to assuage our guilt. We wanted a way to get the convenience without feeling like a selfish jerk. The bottle may look empty, yet it's anything but trash. It's full of potential. And at DuPont, we're making sure that the potential isn't thrown away. We've pioneered the country's largest, most comprehensive plastic recycling program to help plastic fill valuable uses and roles instead of filling valuable land. At DuPont, we make the things that make a difference. And the amount of effort required to recycle a plastic bottle is exactly the right amount of effort. Composting really hasn't caught on because composting is a pain in the neck, because composting takes time, because composting might smell, because composting brings bugs along. But recycling, the convenience, the virtue of putting out two bins instead of one, not that big a hassle. And now I'm off the hook. I get to feel like a good person and have my convenience at the same time. It is not clear that the people who were responsible for this conspiracy understood human nature this deeply. They were flailing around. They were the gas companies and the oil companies. The oil companies aren't known for being brilliant marketers. But in this case, they were brilliant marketers. But then we need to compound it because it's still not convenient if the town doesn't come and pick up the recycling. But how to get the town to do that? Well, they needed two things to happen. The first is they needed a small group of people in every town who cared about the environment to stand up and argue for this expense. And the second thing they needed was more and more citizens willing to participate in recycling. The two of them back and forth and back and forth in a virtuous cycle. There are people who are environmentally inclined. And so when the oil companies hiding behind clever names and lobbying campaigns came to them with something that felt right. Let's take this junk and not dump it in the ocean. Let's put it back into the industrial system that created it. Many environmentalists said, sure, we're behind that. And then the second part, the people who make plastics 
have influence over the companies that are selling it to you. And so they started putting something at the bottom of the container, the recycling symbol and a number. And the number was just complicated enough, just inconvenient enough that we felt like we were doing the right thing by spending one or two cycles to imagine this one can be recycled or this one can't. Or if we were lazy, just recycle them all because after all, there's a recycling symbol on the bottom. And so it all got dumped into the industrial recycling system. The system that with some success can recycle glass or metals can't deal with this deluge of plastic. And so we shipped it all to China and then China stopped taking it. And so we started dumping it in landfills. But before we dumped it in landfills, we washed it very carefully at great expense in our corporate facilities. You might be seeing how deep this goes because you don't need very many people who are into recycling as a cultural totem to shame people who aren't into taking action. It's just easier to put your plastic bottles into a container labeled for them than to deal with someone hassling you because you threw them in the garbage. And so the ratchet continues to turn because culture runs deep and people like us do things like this is important. It establishes who we are. It gives us peace of mind. And once we've made a decision, once we've decided that we're the kind of person that sacrifices just a bit of convenience to be part of us, it's really hard to give that up because of sunk costs. Because if we did it yesterday, were we wrong to do it yesterday? Or is it just easier to keep doing it tomorrow? And so in the face of this information, it's still hard for me to walk past a recycling bin, even though I know that we were scammed, that there really is no upside to recycling this plastic bottle because I'm not really recycling it. Back to our story. All of which leads to this cycle, this cycle of here's something that's convenient and here's a way to not feel guilty about it. Here's a way for your government to spend money to send a truck to your house so it's more convenient so that you can put something into the blue bin and not feel guilty about it. And around it goes. And despite the fact that this has all been exposed, the plastics industry is doing it again. They just launched a new campaign. Because when we bring together the heroes of today to dream, to build, and help our cities, our communities, and our neighborhoods improve, we can do something truly incredible. Let's be the ones that came together to change the world. This new campaign, these, quote, investments, unquote, aren't going to keep plastic out of the waste stream, and they're not going to keep plastic out of the ocean. What they do is they give the convenience-seeking consumer a way to feel better about his or her choices. So all of this is a way of understanding how our culture tends to work. One thing that we do as humans is we want to absolve ourselves of sins and we put them all into a big bucket and let that bucket be held by someone else, some other organization, some other government entity, a scapegoat perhaps. But it's not our problem. We're just doing 
what comes easy to us, what's convenient, what's a little cheaper. We've got lives to live, families to feed, work to do. We're not going to spend all our time seeking out a glass bottle. And so people like the plastics industry, which have built this conspiracy, continue to turn out more plastic than ever before because that's how our culture works. Because in the short run, everyone is doing what they are supposed to do. Every single entity involved in this story, the lobbyists, the oil executives, the shareholders, the people at the government hearings, the consumers, the harried moms and dads at the supermarket buying yogurt, every single person is acting in their short-term best interests. And the challenge that we have as architects of culture is to figure out what to do about that when the externalities are not built in. No one is actually paying the cost of billions of pounds of plastic floating around in the ocean. This idea that satisfying our short-term selfish interests will eventually work itself out is the undoing of our culture because culture works when we actually lean against our short-term selfish incentives. That's the hard work of changing what people like us do when we do things like this. So we're going to have to figure out, in this case and in so many other cases, a different story, a story that resonates in a different way, that opens the door for a forward ratchet that doesn't involve more single-use plastic, that doesn't involve lobbyists and conspiracies and stories we want to hear, but stories that aren't true. And yet, even as I say this, I really want to be able to recycle plastic. Recycling plastic would make my life so much easier and eliminate the guilt that's associated with buying something that's more convenient, cheaper, lighter, easier to use, and more resilient. One thing's clear, Seth Godin changing the way he buys things in plastic is going to make no difference whatsoever in how the world deals with this problem. We need a centralized, long-term, thoughtful approach that uses market power to shift the ratchet in the other direction. What we learned when we raised the tax on cigarettes was pretty clear. Fewer people smoke cigarettes. The market pays attention to how much something costs. And if we're really serious about changing the flow of plastics through our waste stream, the simple, direct, and effective answer is to change how much they cost. Because once we do that, the market will wake up and pay attention and figure out a way around it. So no, the market doesn't solve every problem. But our culture? Our culture is held hostage by the market because we've been inundated for so many years by effective stories that are about how we buy and how we sell, because that's how so many of us keep score. And if we don't find a solution that understands, respects, and dances with the market, it's no solution at all. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a couple of questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. 
It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or anything previous, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We're going to do two questions this week. Here we go. Hey, Seth. It's Nathan from Jackson, Mississippi. I just got finished listening to your Fractions episode from last week. And I have to say, I think it's my favorite Akimbo episode so far. And I don't really know why, but it got me thinking about your other episode, Math Class is Hard. And of course, my brain kept going and wondering why these ideas these mathematical principles, practices, ways of looking at the world, you know, why they aren't taught. And so I had the question, what would a Seth Godin math class look like? Curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks for everything you do. You're an inspiration every day. Thank you for this, Nathan. I really appreciate it. I've given some thought to this and I'm lucky enough to know Annie Duke, former world poker champion and author of a best-selling book about making decisions. Her new book, which isn't out yet, is really exciting as well. Her thought is that we need to teach kids to make better decisions. So the first thing I would do is replace half of all the time that's spent on math and instead spend that time on decision-making. I would start in kindergarten and teach decision-making as a craft. Because through the lens of decision-making, we can teach an enormous range of useful, practical, and academic skills that will help the citizens of the future cope with a world that's going to be filled with choices. But we still need math, not arithmetic, because arithmetic is sort of an epic waste of time in a world where we all have a device in our pocket that does arithmetic better and faster than we ever could, but math. And math is not three plus three. Math is understanding the concepts around abstract numbers. And the best way I can think to do that, inspired by Annie Duke, is starting in second grade, I'm going to leave the first graders out of this, we should start teaching kids how to play poker. And there should be five or 10 years of poker playing going on in school. Because not only will poker playing enroll kids in a journey, because the enrollment is critical. It's not about will this be on the test, it's will this help me win the next round of poker? And unlike soccer or other sports, it's a level playing field. The smallest kid, the youngest kid, the shortest kid has just as much of a chance of winning a game of poker 
as anybody else in the classroom. And once you start playing poker, not only do you need to learn decision-making, but quickly you start understanding probability and fractions and percentages and the rest of it. After five years of playing poker, kids aren't going to memorize what to do with a full house. What they're going to understand is an inherent vision, a way of seeing that lets them embrace all the stuff that the world is going to put in front of them. Sure, after that, there's plenty of room to polish kids who are enrolled in this journey to help them get to things like algebra and trigonometry. But let's start by teaching kids to love math the way some of us do. Thanks for this. Hi, Seth. It's Dom here from Queensland, Australia. I listened to your recent episode about jet skis and fatbergs with particular interest. I work in the field of outdoor recreation, and my organisation is an advocate for outdoor activities. One of our regular refrains is appropriate activities in appropriate locations. So perhaps the situation is not that we shouldn't be manufacturing jet skis, but maybe the manufacturers of jet skis should also be manufacturing, creating, allocating appropriate locations for those jet skis to be used. Maybe that as a society, we need to push some more responsibility on those manufacturers to find appropriate ways to use their products rather than just releasing them onto an unsuspecting world, which annoys unsuspecting people on their back porch a mile away from the river. Thanks for all the work you do. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you, Dom. I think there are two really big ideas here, which I haven't touched on. The first one is the idea that manufacturers ought to be responsible for the side effects of what they make because there are no side effects. There's only effects. And I think there's a difference between someone misusing a product and someone using the product in a way it was sort of intended to be used. So we can look at something as simple as what happens to the boxes that manufacturers use to put their stuff in? Who's responsible for the cost of getting rid of those boxes? Well, with all the codes that we can put in and on things, it's pretty easy to track how a box ended up in the disposal stream. And if manufacturers are responsible for how those boxes are disposed of, you can bet it would take about 15 minutes for boxes to end up being much more disposable. So number one, as you're pointing out, responsibility of the manufacturer. And the second one is this idea of appropriate. Because so many of the conflicts between personal freedom and the public sphere are about this very idea of, is it appropriate? Is it appropriate to bring a boombox into a movie theater while everyone else is watching a movie and playing your music? I think we would all agree the answer is no. You don't have the freedom to interrupt the movie, even though it's a private space, with your music. Well, too often what we've done is said, well, this is a public space and I can do whatever I want. I can throw whatever I want overboard or out the window. I can create all sorts of ripples for the people around me. And for a long time, particularly in villages as opposed to cities, we relied on people's good sense to help them avoid doing things that were inappropriate. 
But now it's getting harder and harder to do that, partly because social media has made it a sport, partly because there are people who run Fortune 100 companies. There are people who are in elected office who have decided that being inappropriate is a shortcut to being noticed and that being noticed is a shortcut to being successful. It's hard for me to see how that scales. It's hard for me to see how that works in the long run. So thanks for the question. Thank you for the work you do. We'll see everybody next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.